Hi, I'm James Verdeer and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. For today's episode, I had the great fortune to be joined by Dr. Brenda Lynn from CSIRO Land and Water in Australia, as well as Dr. Eric Anderson, who is Professor of Sustainability Science with the University of Helsinki and Stockholm University. They joined me today to talk about green spaces, particularly those in urban areas. Um, we've had previous conversations on Bioscience Talks about the value of urban green spaces, whether we're talking about the ecological value or the effects on you know human health and well-being uh, but this discussion really gave us a chance to dig into some detail we talked about how different groups use different types of spaces and also how planning can be used to you know achieve urban green spaces that are both well used and equitably used and also just a valuable part of the urban landscape but I'll go ahead and let our guests explain so let's go straight to the interview all right thank you very much for joining me today thanks James thank you for Okay, just to get us kicked off, I wanted to ask a question, and it's a very general one, about urban green spaces. And in particular, what are they? You know, I think all of us will have ideas in our minds about, you know, what a park in a city might be like. But, you know, what kinds of places are we generally talking about? You know, what's the variety that exists, you know, according to this definition? So, I'll go first. <laughs> um, I guess I think of urban green spaces as both all those public urban green spaces we think about, the parks that we hang out at, the areas near the ocean, um, you know, riverbanks, natural areas and forests in, in urban areas that we use. But it can extend beyond that to yards, you know, these private areas that certain people have available, um, rooftop gardens, um, even peri-urban spaces that are immediately available to you know, to city dwellers. And there is another thing to the urban green. It's a bit different than in many other places. It mixes and meshes with other infrastructures. So sometimes it's more of a hybrid character. We are talking also about novel green spaces or green and gray spaces, green walls, green roofs. These things that perhaps aren't necessarily seen conventionally as nature, but still have ecological qualities to it. So there's a lot of things that could be called urban green space. Okay, and I find this question, next one, very easy to answer for myself, which is, you know, kind of... Um, what is the value of these spaces for, you know, those who are living in urban areas? You know, for myself, it's it's very easy to answer that. It's, you know, it's, I like walking around. I like, you know, hiking. I like taking my kids to the park and that kind of thing. But, you know, what sorts of values uh, do people derive from being able to recreate in these spaces, walk through them, or even just kind of be near them? In a way, that's a hard question because there's so, so many benefits that come from these green spaces. And it kind of depends on the person, how they want to use the space, what they're getting from it. So in, in your case, I'm sure you're you're taking a walk through that space because it's relaxing and enjoyable, right? That you're finding that it's a good way to unwind or, I don't know, what, what would you say is that, is the reason why you enjoy walking through that space? I, I think for me, it's as close as I can get to, you know, a natural area that's near my home. Um, you know, I, I don't live in a particularly dense city, but I live in, you know, a, an area that's pretty populous and I enjoy getting out and seeing a little bit of nature. But there's yeah. a bit of a mix there. So there's what you get from being in nature, but nature is part of our, hopefully, part of our everyday life. So I'd say when think for yourself, when you walk in the park, do you do it yourself? Do you do it with family, friends? Because quite often what we get out of this experience is also 
a mix of all the other factors that goes into a visit to a green space. I may be there with my friends, with my partner, with other people, definitely, and of course with the rest of the city inhabitants, the non-human inhabitants as well. So all these things also influence. People definitely think of it, of green space as potentially either a place to be alone and away from the city. So there's some um, some research that is really looking at how people use it therapeutically as a way to kind of get yourself out of the busyness, busyness of urban life, away from the crowds. Um, but then at, at the same time, uh, other people use it as a way to socialize or feel like they can connect to a community that maybe they want to be alone, but want to be still be part of a community. And so there, there are just so many ways that can that an individual can use um, the, a green space to for the, whatever purposes that they need. Okay, so I think that gives us a really good overview of some of the different ways that people use and benefit from these urban green spaces. What I'm wondering now, though, is about the way that these spaces are designed. You know, what are the kinds of things that city planners or others do that, you know, set up one of these spaces for success and a lot of use or perhaps in turn, you know, set it up for disuse and, you know, not being something that's as valuable for the city dwellers as they could be. Um, What are kind of the trends there? Yeah, it's always incredible to think about how much work went into making a space usable, right? Um, it's interesting. We've done a, a focus group with a range of park practitioners in New South Wales, around Sydney. And one of the things that came out really strongly from that is that you can't look at a park or green space in and of itself, right? Like a park and a green space might have certain qualities that are great. But it's really that mix of parks and green spaces that are available to you and that you can get to that really help capture what you can do in them, what's available to you, what the benefits you can get. So um, I think there used to be this lens that if we build it, they will come. If we build a great space, it will people will really come and enjoy it. But I think there's a, a more of an understanding now that it's not just about building one space. It's about one building multiple spaces with potentially slightly different goals and um, and, and ideas of, of ways that people can use it. Um, but it's also about working with communities to understand what they actually want out of the space. What do you what do you what do you need from a green space that that's near your house? Is it I need a way that's shaded to get to school or to the bus stop? Um, and is there a nice walk I can do on the way? And there's some water fountains. Um, is it that there are a number of um, people who are older and want a, a space to socialize, a safe, clean space somewhere that's relaxing that provides some kind of um, ability for them to socialize? So it, it's a. I, I think really it, that there has been a big move toward trying to understand what communities need and want, and then help co-design spaces to get to that outcome. Um, So when looking at a park or any green space, you see a design, you see the management management with an intended outcome. So these are highly managed areas and there's always an idea behind our management. And like Brenda said, green spaces are managed differently and for different purposes and to cater to different needs or audiences. 
But what goes into planning and design beyond the rather obvious or reasonably obvious uh, type of vegetation and so forth, there is also an institutional design. And this is both at the green space level and at the city level which areas are public, which are private, what kind of rights, what kind of opportunities. Again, differentiating what uses, who can use these areas for what and so forth. And that is not as apparent, but it's usually thought to, you should be thought to, to make sure that there are clear and differentiated rights and responsibilities when it comes to these areas. Again, to make sure that different people can find a place and find space <clears throat> for their interests and needs. And then finally, what is done in them also, and this can be done together with communities or for communities, as Brenda said, but there's also programming, which is what you add extra. So there's, as I said before, there's what green space does, but quite often we are cued by other things. There need to be some human presence in there. So of course we provide footpaths, benches, barbecue opportunities, all these other things that kind of indicate what you can do in them and help people read and make use of space. So that is maybe the perhaps best recognized among park planners and others how to both create an interesting green space and also how to queue for these various things. But it is also very important what you do institutionally and also like Brenda said, to make sure that this is not just something you do for individual green spaces, but you have a coherent, comprehensive strategy at the urban, like city or metropolitan level, and to make sure that you have complementarity among these spaces and not all of them. Because it's also a question of what's next to the park. Is it the residential area? Is it the industrial office spaces? What not? So if the context of each green space should influence to some extent uh, how it is planned or what thoughts goes into what could be done there and which functions it's primarily meant to provide. And I don't want to be too instrumentalist there either. So yes, we do try to program green spaces, but I also, I started out in ecology. So for me, it's very important that these are spaces also for other organisms, not just humans. So we shouldn't try to control them too much, but there should be space somewhere in there also for biodiversity in general. There's something really interesting, I think, also about green spaces and almost like the social cultural rules that we put around it. Um, like, I, I think, you know, uh, we as a community for different spaces kind of decide, oh, well, this is kind of a picnic area. It's going to be loud. It's fine. Right. Whereas this is a more natural area. Uh, this is where you might come for some solitude for more bird watching or convening with nature. Um, and, and even, you know, I visited Eric in Sweden and what I, things I've noticed are, are even things like social cultural norms around safety. Um, in, in Australia, you know, there would be a lot of signage to say, don't climb on that, don't do that, don't pick that, don't eat that. And in Sweden, it's a very different social cultural norm around how you interact with nature with, with none of the signage. They're like, well, if you want to jump off that rock, that's your choice. Just you, it's your responsibility to do it safely, right? So, uh, because public spaces are these managed spaces, 
um, these risk and liability issues in the background also become a, a part of that, part of those social and cultural norms of how you manage these spaces. I think that is important because sometimes we think of these spaces as only serving human needs and they should be safe, they should be controlled. But, but I remember growing up myself, there was a, just a small, I'm from Stockholm, so I grew, grew up in the suburbs, but still there's plenty of nature and remnant nature left, not just green spaces, but patches of forest, and then just leftovers from previous land uses. And I was out there having accidents all the time, so again, it seems I survived, and I think that green spaces should allow people to develop a more realistic relation with nature. It's not just there to please us or to serve our needs, but it's there, it's just there, and we need to relate to it and ideally also think through how we behave in it. We can't just use it any way, but we have to respect it in some sense too. So yes, but the, and there definitely are cultural differences, but and I'm maybe biased by the way I grew up, but I think it had. That's probably changed with time too. Perhaps we used yeah. to be a little bit more open to risk when when being in green spaces or nature spaces, and that level of risk taking or uh, ability to judge risk has reduced with less less interaction with more natural spaces. One of the things we're trying to get at in the paper is that as you learn about nature or have a different understanding of nature, what you perceive as maybe not safe or risky or not interactable changes. So, you know, um, we live in Brisbane, Australia, which is subtropical, and we have pythons in our backyard, and that's just life and nature and sometimes there's an eastern brown which is very poisonous and you avoid them but pythons are fine right and you just have to ha learn that pythons are fine they're going to show up they'll probably eat some rats for you and that's great <laughs> um but having that exposure and learning about that is definitely essential to realizing well we don't want to kill reptiles or, or we don't want green spaces that are natureless we, we want green we still want green spaces that have these biological components that allow us to actually learn about about nature and ecology and the different biological cycles that actually happen yeah and i think that's a really interesting point it brings to mind actually a conversation i had with um, another australian we were talking about the various outdoor risks in our respective countries and neither of these things are actually risky but you know i find huntsman spiders absolutely terrifying uh they're the size of a cat and i don't like them, uh, but they're utterly harmless. And you know, likewise, the person with whom I was conversing was saying that you know he didn't, wasn't sure he could ever hike or recreate in a place where there were black bears. And now, you know, I go out hiking on you know the Appalachian Trail or something like that. And if I see a black bear, I know that I can clap my hands; it'll run away. It's like a more fearful raccoon in many ways behaviorally. And I think it just does a lot to highlight you know the differences um, you know in, in understanding of fear and risk uh, that we have depending very heavily on you know what we've actually experienced and you know I, I think it's an interesting point that these green spaces give us an opportunity to engage with nature in that way you know there is a big difference so other studies we didn't look at it that much but other studies have shown that if you have experience of nature and if you have already formed an attachment and have understanding of nature 
you'll find more opportunities and also have a stronger like positive health effect for being exposed to nature so you just more attuned to it you know better what you can do and you also perhaps are more receptive to the things that could offer stress relief and other things so it's not just something we possibly take up or absorb but also something that we can develop and of course starting young is easier but it's never too late it also points to the fact that even for adults who might be scared of nature or might be i don't know scared of being outside there there are ways to help them be less afraid right like teaching them how to be in nature how how to go for hikes in a potentially uh an area with snakes and spiders how to um be at a park and realize that those bees are not going to sting you. So it, I, I think there are a lot of ways to help provide education and programs that help people learn about nature so that they can be in more natural spaces, that they're not only expecting mowed lawns or curated shrubs. And that 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 they're and then that means that the green space that's available to them really opens up. That makes a ton of sense. And I was wondering if we could pivot now and talk a little bit about the framework that you lay out in the article that describes, you know, how planners and others can set up an urban green space for success. And it brought to mind as I was reading the article, um, a green space from my own history that was certainly not set up for success. So I grew up across the street from a small park. It was, please forgive the units, uh, four acres. You know, I had a basketball court, tennis court, playground. Um, and most important, a soccer field. And the soccer field was very well loved and very well used. And on the weekends, it would just be packed with people enjoying the weather and you know the air and the game and all that. Uh, and it was a lot of fun. But eventually, some relatively small, I would assume, group of stakeholders or somebody uh, got together and had them put up a baseball diamond in that space instead. And they threw up a fence. They allowed half of the soccer field to become completely overgrown, uh, which is great for the deer, but not so great if you're not a deer. And um, what ended up happening is that the park fell into disuse in a lot of respects. You know, there are still people occasionally playing basketball and things like that, but it's a very quiet place where at once it was a, um, you know, a space that was uh, much more heavily enjoyed and heavily used. And I'm wondering, you know, how following that sort of framework, um, you know, planners and others might do a better job than was done, you know, across the street from my childhood home, you know, um, what would people do if they were kind of planning for those types of spaces the right way instead of, you know, this, which is clearly one of the wrong ways? Yeah, I mean, you you know, when there's a park that people don't want, right? <laughs> people to tell you very quickly, and very clearly when there's a park that they don't want, people will stop going there. I think in the end, the park almost becomes uncared for because the community doesn't care for it and doesn't want to put in the time and effort to maintain it or or, or provide you know that community feel to it. Um, it's almost like a, a bit of a divorce, right? Like, oh, you changed, <laughs> and so we're not in the we're not in the same place anymore. Um, I think parks do change with time. But you have to change with time based on what people need and what people want. Maybe different parts of the community wanted something different, but then where was the conversation about what was the different aspect of the park that was needed or that was desired? So it, it would be interesting to, to look at that and see um, how that decision was made. Because in the end, 
I, I think a lot of times these decisions are made uh, a bit too singularly and, and with only a small group of people. I think one of the reasons though is because consulting with a diverse stakeholder group is work. It is not necessarily an easy thing. It's not going to be, oh, we all love this. We're going to want this. It's probably going to be several different groups that maybe want something slightly different. They want different aspects in the park um, and they'll be fighting for what they want. And that's difficult, but it's probably a necessary conversation to have. And it's probably good for also a community to know just how diverse people are within their community, what different people want, uh, how different people want to use that space. And it's probably a good conversation to have if, if they're willing to facilitate that. And there's another thing, Qi, the whole design idea, if it's Qi, if the programming is Qi heavy hunted top down and also Qi monofunctional or specific, it society changes, our needs change. So, and one of the things you have for the potential of open spaces, green spaces, different than much of the rest of the cities, that they are fairly open in their function. You can use them for different purposes or repurpose them. And this is how we've seen parks survive over the centuries. Is how they, their identity and their use has just changed over time. And if you have not put like too strong a stamp on it, as I heard in your example with the baseball fields, it's kind of hard to use it for anything else and also to change it to anything else. But if you have a bit of a mixed open nature, it's relatively easy to change from one use to another. And we've seen this in periods of crisis where much of the recreational spaces have turned into agriculture on just small fields for producing food had it to be the big wars in the 20th century and i can imagine that it may become more common again in the future where things are a bit more uncertain so this with flexing with time and leaving them a bit open-ended in their design so important to design them together with people but also important not to over design or to program too hard uh, because you need to leave some options or like easy alternatives that could be or easy ways of changing it into something else to accommodate new needs, new circumstances. One um, area or, or gap that seems to occur in a lot of cities is that there's park design, green space design really thought for, for younger kids right, and adults who want to recreate or socialize and picnic, but there seems to be this lack of um, consultation or thought or consideration as kids become teenagers, right? And one of the things that we talk about in the paper is this idea of affordances, that the way that you want to interact with space as a three or four-year-old changes as you get older, right? You're, what you want to do at a, as an eight to 10-year-old changes. And then even when you get to those teenage years, right? 12 to 14, 17 years old, how do we actually think about making spaces more flexible so that as the kids grow up, they can still see themselves interacting with that space, being in that space? Um, how do we provide programming that uh, that doesn't discount that group because all of a sudden then they get to university and there's a space 
designed for university students, right? And for those 20 year olds and everything. Um, but we, we really have this kind of this gap, this gap in those years of how do we think about and work with them to design those spaces? Yeah, is it really just a matter of bringing everybody to the table? You know, when I th- when I think about the park that was in my neighborhood when I was a kid, um, I you know the real problem and the reason why the park ultimately wasn't used is because they didn't bring those who were enjoying those you know an open field with you know that could be used for many different things, um, but it was often used for soccer. The, those who used it for soccer were not consulted, um, and you know, and is it is it just a matter of kind of getting every, more people into the mix? Um, and making sure that you're kind of drawing in the largest possible groups, um, you know, in order to kind of do that planning in a way that's thoughtful of everybody. Um, is, is, is that kind of the key to making sure that the space is actually usable for, you know, broader groups and everybody rather than just, you know, the, the few seven or eight people in my neighborhood who like playing baseball? It would help. It's not an easy solution. And I'm, I often challenge my planet friends because inviting more people to your process, the planning process or whatever it is, will never succeed. Because that's a very specific process owned by a specific entity that people may or may not trust. So I would say what you need, if you want to consult or understand people, you need to be a bit more flexible with your processes as well. It's not just being inclusive or inviting people to your process, but also listen in to other conversations like these things happen everywhere local communities are discussing their spaces too within families within groups whatever and they're like the best way of understanding what they want would be to listen to them or come to an event organized by them or something else so it's not again if we impose a very specific process design like planning on a dialogue, it will make it immediately less attractive to many of the groups and especially like then anyway, if you want to listen in to people, you also need to understand that different things are said in different uh, fora or in different places. So maybe not always see as the you understanding the you in this case as us planners, which we aren't, but anyway. But still, you need to be a bit more flexible with how and when you talk to people. And they're talking to more people. And sometimes I'm not sure that convening everyone to the same meeting is the best either, because sometimes these spaces are conflicted or contested. So, and the, so some of the work I've done, and I'm sure you've experienced the same, Brenda, having research and researchers present can help as well because we are often understood as uh, yeah, less biased or more neutral so talking to us is not as maybe problematic as so talking to your neighbor or a planner so sometimes we become also mediators even if that is not the intention of our work it's still like we yes we're interested in uh, the collective knowledge and see if we can help share it so there again, it may help if you have some neutral ground where people can meet and sometimes processes are best served by people not meeting, but still someone collecting their ideas and then presenting them back to the larger group. So yes, more people need to be involved, but just how to involve them and all the different ways you can work with this to make it fit with different local realities. 
is challenging and is far like, very different from a regulated standardized planning process. Uh, so it needs a different practice, but she would be a welcome shift, I'd say. But it seems like from your example too, James, that there's some power in just observation there, right? That, you know, maybe the need for an informal sports field was more important to the community than a formalized space. And so this this informal, formal, like, like do we dictate exactly what a space is, what, you know, or do we leave it open for people to develop their own idea of what they're going to they're going to do with that space we're going to play soccer one day maybe we'll play frisbee maybe we'll just picnic and have a you know a big party um i think those things too if you if you watch how people are using spaces um what people are enjoying and deciding to to do with the space it gives you a lot of information on on what a community wants as well because they will transform some formal spaces as well to less formal uh ways of use if that's what they want and this is an important lesson too and especially in times where densification and building compact cities at least in part of the world is seen as the ideal yes we can have high quality small pocket parks so forth but just open space larger open space is different because it is much more flexible in how it can be used and also more accommodating in terms of allowing for different parallel uses. There is a bit of a tension here and there's been work going into it's not just like it's not a linear increase when you scale up green spaces but larger green spaces are functionally different so somewhere in the city within a reasonable distance to where people live you need also larger spaces so you can't just improve the quality of pocket parks and other things and believe that you have seen to you all the needs people have there's and with larger spaces there's also easier maybe to accommodate more informality or more ways that people can at least take control of a small part of that space and turn it into more of a place for themselves i, I have a good example of uh informal spaces and how different planners have listened I have a colleague who works in planning and one of the things they see in some of these larger parks is that they there's always planned pathways right but in the end people will walk the way they want to walk because maybe that's the most direct way from point a to point b and that's where a lot of people are going you know like this is the bus stop that's the train station they want to go that way um and and they've really thought about that when they see a like lawn being tread there's just you know a path being tread that wasn't a planned path well how do we make this kind of an informal but formalized path now that people we maintain it a bit it's not maybe that concrete path because people still like it but you, you know you start recognizing that um, this is the way people want to use the space. This is how people are using the space. And you start thinking about, well, how do we redesign or, or just, uh, change the management a bit to accommodate what we're, what we're seeing, how we, how we see people using 
the space. No, that's a that's a great point, and I think it you know it speaks to the the need to be adaptable in you know kind of managing and planning these spaces as well. Um, I, I think that would actually be a great note to leave the conversation on um, if we so choose. But uh, before I do that, um, I'm just wondering, you know, are, are there any questions that I should have asked that I have not yet asked? Are there any you know, topics that we should hit before we um, close this one out? You're asking two scholars whether there are additional questions. <laughs> yeah, where is more research needed? <laughs> well, there is plenty more to be said. I think we have had a good conversation and it does capture some of the so maybe the take home messages is that it's not always as easy, but there's just because something is complicated doesn't mean we can't work with it. And we have plenty of knowledge how to work with this complexity and turn it into something that is reasonable, attractive. It may take a bit more time, but then again, engagement with people and having more conversations in society is not a bad thing. Well, with the society we see today, I see plenty of need for just talking to people you don't normally speak to. I think one of the main points that we are trying to make in the paper is really that green spaces and thinking about how humans interact with space, right? It is really such an interdisciplinary topic. We traditionally look at it from that narrow scope or, or multiple narrow scopes. But if we actually try to look at it more comprehensively, we can probably come up with better solutions to design better spaces that deliver better and more benefits. Um, but it's probably on us to try to bring that together and work with actual practitioners who are making decisions on the ground to figure out how do you do this? How do you, how do you actually get different voices in the room um, and make sure their people are represented? And there's an old and unfortunate dichotomy making a distinction, a difference between city and nature, which I think is a policy. The city is nature and the green is part of the city and our relation to it is again also part of the urban life so it can't be apart or seen as apart from city need to be planned as part of the overall infrastructure and as something that is very much part of people's lives identities and so forth so again what we've tried to show with the paper is how you can take a more systemic approach to looking at the city not green spaces as such but at the city and then understanding the role of green spaces and people's relation to them in this larger context another point that we're trying to make in the paper is really about power dynamics too that these decisions are highly based on these the, the power dynamics that are in, embedded within the system right and so part of changing the system is also trying to think how do you bring more, more voices in so that the power dynamics can change too and that there is actually more power given to communities to make some decisions yeah i think that's uh, that's an absolutely great point and i think a good one on which to conclude um i'd like to thank you both very much for joining me today thanks james thank you it was a pleasure And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.